Heavenly Father, it's a privilege and honour to come before your holy word this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us clearly and powerfully in your word, that in your word you show us your promise of salvation that has been fulfilled and enacted in your son, Jesus, as he died and rose again on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would remind and refresh us by your word this morning. Cast our eyes to Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would work your Holy Spirit in us, that we may continue to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, 1980, a certain Leslie Strobel after befriending a believer, going to church, and investigating Jesus for herself, Leslie Strobel decided to believe in and follow the risen Lord Jesus. Her husband, Lee Strobel, he was a legal editor at the Chicago Tribune, which was one of the biggest journalist um, uh, organizations in, the world, in, in America at the time. He was an atheist, a hedonist at the time, and Lee Strobel, he thought his wife had fallen victim to a cult. So Lee, he embarked on this investigation using his legal training and journalism experience, putting God and Jesus and the gospel on trial. And over a period of almost two years, he realized that God and Jesus and the gospel that it would require more faith for him to continue to be an atheist than for him to follow Jesus. You see, over those two years, as Lee put God on trial, the tables had actually turned. You could say that God was putting Lee on trial. Whether Lee would respond to the claim that Jesus had indeed risen from the grave and that Jesus is the Lord and Savior that we're to trust in and follow. Lee Strobel famous, famously wrote the book, The Case for Christ, which has also become a movie based on his investigations into Christianity. For Lee, he started out putting the gospel on trial, but in the end, the gospel put him on trial. And I think this is a reality we need to remember as we live in God's world. The world thinks that we live in a world where God is on trial, where God has to defend himself, and God has to prove that he's right and the gospel is true. But in reality, we live in God's world, don't we? And the onus isn't on God to defend himself. It's actually on people in God's world to respond to God, the creator, to respond to his good news, to respond to his invitation to life and salvation, to respond to the creator and king of this world. And that's what we see here in Acts 26. It starts with King Agrippa putting Paul and the gospel on trial, but it ends with King Jesus through Paul putting Agrippa and the audience on trial for the gospel. And as we think about our society today, it's easy to think about truths of Jesus as truths to defend. And this is an important stance, but we need to remember the truths of Jesus 
a truth to proclaim as a good thing that you want to share, just like Tim alluded to before. You might have come to our community dinner last week, and that curry, I think it tasted so good. And it tasted so good, maybe, that you told others that the curry you had on that Saturday night was really good. Well, if you've experienced the goodness of trusting in Jesus, the risen Lord, the hope that it gives you for the future, because you have eternal life in Jesus, the peace that it brings you today, because of your right standing with God, the purpose that it brings, understanding that you are a child of God, that this reality of being in Jesus is so good that you simply want to tell others about it. You see, if evangelizing is something that's forced, that's done grudgingly, or is a struggle, or is only a defensive strategy, or even something we ignore, maybe we've lost sight of the goodness of trusting in the risen Lord Jesus. And if people can't see that he's good in your life and in your evangelism, why would anyone looking on to you believe in him? Well, as we embark on Acts 26, Paul's definitely defending himself, and he's definitely defending the gospel message. But we've already seen in the last few chapters that he finds joy in doing this. He knows how good Jesus is. He knows the purpose that Jesus brings him. And he knows the hope found in the risen Christ. And because of this, Paul can turn defense into offense using a sporting analogy. From defending the gospel to proclaiming the good news of life in Jesus. And here, he does this three ways in this chapter. He does it firstly through his testimony, secondly, by declaring truth, and thirdly, by calling for a response. You see, Paul might be the one in chains here, but Paul's proclamation of the risen Lord Jesus, it's unchained. It's being heard and heralded and proclaimed to the king and the governor, the leaders and officials all gathered here. Well, the narrative starts, remember, the end of chapter 25. Uh, it's a super official public gathering of dignitaries with the purpose of Agrippa, the king, hearing out Paul's defense. And Paul starts out like this in verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Again, Paulie says how grateful he is to be able to speak and defend himself. He isn't rude. He isn't combative like some of the examples we see today. And Paul, he acknowledges the context of who he's talking to. It's King Agrippa. He's someone familiar with the Jews, being a Jew himself and a king over the Jewish people. And he asks for patience because he knows that for a Jew, he might not be keen to hear Paul out. And from verse 4 to 21, Paul, he 
mixes his defense by telling his story, his own testimony, retelling how he came to Jesus and what that means for him. And he starts out with his life before meeting Jesus in verse 4. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul starts here with how Jewish he was. He's the model Jew under Judaism. He was born and bred a Jew. He was part of the Pharisees, the strictest group of Judaism. Everyone in Jerusalem knew this about Paul. And Paul, he argues that he's on trial because of the hope that he was born and bred as a Jew to have. The hope passed down from God to the fathers of Israel. The hope they worshipped God in anticipation of in the temple night and day. And that's the hope of resurrection and new life through God's promised Messiah. Paul continues outlining his life before Jesus in verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was originally in the same place the Jews accusing him were. As a born and bred Jew, he was skeptical of this new group called Christians. He opposed them. He locked them up. He approved of deaths. He punished them trying to get them to blaspheme, that's to renege on their trust in Jesus, to disavow him. He even went on missionary trips to foreign cities to persecute these Jesus followers. Paul's saying here he's born and bred Jewish in Judaism. He even persecuted these Jesus people. He was totally against Jesus. And at this point, the audience, the readers, including us today, we should be wondering what caused the change from back then to Paul now on trial. And if you've been following Acts, you know the answer, but Agrippa and the officials don't. And now we hear Paul continuous testimony in verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. 
This is the third time that Luke records Paul's conversion experience, and he always records it in detail, narrative, words quoted, not just in summary, so we know that this is an important story. And remember, Paul, he was so Jewish and anti-Jesus that he was on his way to Damascus. He was sent officially to persecute Christians. And this is when he encounters the risen Lord Jesus. It was already sunny, being midday, but the brilliance of the light from heaven was even more bright than that, and they all fell to the ground. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says this interesting phrase, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It means something like, it must be hard to resist God, to go against your conscience or destiny, or more simply, it must be hard to labor on the wrong side. Paul, he obviously realizes that this is a vision of Jesus from God. So he asks, who are you, Lord? And Jesus responds by revealing himself, I'm the guy that you're persecuting. I'm Jesus. I'm the one that's ruling from heaven. And I'd love to have been there, seeing Paul's thoughts and reactions in this moment where I think this is the moment when the penny drops for Paul about Jesus. Jesus continues in verse 16, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to point you as a servant and witness to the things in which you've seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now as Paul speaks of the task that Jesus gives him, a servant and witness, especially to the Gentiles. But even in this, as Jesus speaks, we see an image of the power of the gospel here that all believers are called to witness to. You see, the gospel causes people to open closed eyes, to turn from darkness to light, to be transferred from the power of Satan to God and to receive forgiveness of sins and a place in the people of Jesus. You see, this is what we want to see happen in people's lives. Not for people to simply tick the Christian box in the census, but we want to see people's lives transformed as they bow their knee to the risen Lord Jesus. Illustrated here, eyes opened, darkness to light, from Satan to God, from condemnation and death to forgiveness and life. Paul's encountered the risen Lord Jesus, and his life changed spectacularly and dramatically from being an enemy of Jesus 
to believing in Jesus as God's promised Messiah and from a persecutor of those who proclaim Jesus to himself, proclaiming the goodness of Jesus to the world. And Paul, he finishes his testimony defense here by explaining his current predicament. Verse 21. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not obedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. See, this illustrates Paul, obedient now to God's promised Messiah in Jesus, a promise shared by Paul and the Jews alike. And it shows Paul declaring the good news of Jesus, calling for a change of management turning to God, and also a change of lifestyle, performing deeds in line with their repentance. And Paul says that's why he's in jail. That's why the Jews tried to kill him. Paul, as he defends himself before King Agrippa, he simply tells his story of how Jesus has worked in his life, pointing to the power of the gospel and points to Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's promises of old. Well, as Paul keeps going, he wraps up his testimony, but he does this by presenting truth to complement his story. Verse 22. To this day, I've had help that comes from God. He, is, he suggests here that God's on his side, which contrasts verse 14, where Jesus says that Paul was working against God. And he keeps going, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. You see, Paul presents gospel truths of Jesus and he presents it here in a way that resonates with a Jew. That Jesus, he's none other than what Moses and all the prophets pointed to. The Christ or Messiah, that's an anointed king who would suffer, meaning to die, and to be the first to rise from the dead, resurrection life, and proclaim light to the whole world, both Jews and Gentiles. You see, Paul, he's effectively saying to Agrippa, Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. He's the one we've been looking for. He's the answer to the promises of God and the hopes we have in Judaism. He's the one who defeats death and ushers in new life forever. As a side note, you might say, 
It's a bit weird here. Moses never pointed to a suffering Messiah. But very quickly, first, Paul's using this phrase, Moses and the prophets. He's referring to all of Scripture of old. And the second thing, the Old Testament idea of a suffering Messiah, it comes together in the prophecies and visions of Isaiah, the vision of God's promised one coming as a suffering servant, just like we sang before in the song, Man of Sorrows. Isaiah 53 shows it the most clearly. It says, he was despised and rejected by men. This is the promised one of God, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces when he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But he, God's promised one, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You see, Paul moves from testimony to truth, declaring clearly who Jesus is and why Agrippa and the audience should take notice, why they should find Paul innocent, but ultimately why they should consider Jesus. The gathering finishes here with a few back and forwards, but ultimately with Paul turning the tables and putting Agrippa and the audience on the spot. Verse 24, Festus, he's still confused and thinks Paul's learnings has made him crazy. Verse 25, Paul suggests that he's fine. And Agrippa, who's a Jew himself, understands all that's been said so far. And we get to a curious exchange in verse 27. Paul says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. You see, here Paul, he turns the tables. Because the gospel isn't just a truth to be defended. It's truth that calls for a response. And Paul's question, while it's not a direct, do you believe in Jesus question, it's a loaded question. Because on one level, he's asking if Agrippa believes in Judaism. But on another level, he's opening up like a great chess player for the next question about whether Agrippa will believe in Jesus. And Agrippa's in a weird position responding because a yes answer to Paul would result in that follow-up question to accept Jesus as the Messiah. But a no answer to Paul would suggest that Agrippa doesn't believe in Judaism at all which would be a bad look for a Jewish king. So in verse 28, Agrippa replies, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He doesn't answer at all. He sidesteps it, seeing what Paul is doing, but he's also kind of laughing off the matter. But Paul, he ends in a tone of seriousness. He reveals his heart and he reveals his reason behind all he said in the trials. 
verse 29. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. You see, Paul isn't just on show in these trials and hearings defending his innocence and defending the gospel. Paul, he longs for, he wants his hearers from Agrippa to the officials to the prison guards on duty to be as he is, having tasted and seen that Jesus is good and found believing in the risen Lord Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And the scene ends with the verdict of Agrippa and the audience, with Luke recording this to say, Paul is innocent. Christianity isn't a threat to Rome, but also in God's unstoppable mission. Paul, he's one step closer to Rome. So as seen in this chapter, it begins with King Agrippa putting the gospel on trial through Paul. And it ends with the gospel through Paul putting King Agrippa and the audience on trial, calling and seeking a response to Jesus. We see God using Paul as a mouthpiece for proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And today, God uses followers of Jesus, us, also as mouthpieces, instruments, vessels, heralds, and ambassadors for the proclamation of that same good news of life in the risen Jesus. And while Paul, he had a special task here, a special commission from God of taking the good news to the Gentiles, all of us as believers were also caught up in God's general calling of all of his people to declare the excellencies of Jesus to the world around us. And Paul demonstrates, I think in this chapter, three tips in how we might do this for us to take the gospel into our world today. And the first tip is this, know and share your testimony. In a world that's all about personal experience and my truth and your truth, your story, your testimony is a powerful mouthpiece that our world is interested in hearing. You see, you can't dismiss or downplay my personal experience of how Jesus has changed my life. So this is a great foot in the door for people to hear about and know about the Jesus that you believe in and live for. So the first tip today is to know your story of how Jesus has worked in your life. And not just to know it, but to be ready to share it, to share your life before you met Jesus, that you were living for yourself, for the world, and you were far away running from God 
and living outside his kingdom and rule. And then to share about the point in your life when you met Jesus. Maybe it was when you heard Jesus explain clearly. Maybe it was through a friend inviting you to church. Maybe it was through a series of circumstances. But be clear, you encountered Jesus. You heard the good news and you understood what it meant for you that Jesus died and rose again. And then you can share about your life since you met Jesus. Talk about the change in your life, and not just the moral change, but life change. The new hope you have of salvation and new life, the new purpose you have of serving the creator God, the new identity you have that you're found in Jesus, that new acceptance and belonging that you have as part of God's forever family. Know your testimony. Know your story of Jesus working in your life and be ready to share it. Maybe this morning you find that you don't know your story. Maybe you're a bit stumped by what I've just outlined. Maybe you need to consider whether you've responded to Jesus properly and fully. Know your testimony and be ready to share it. Second tip, know the truth claims of Jesus. When I talk to many believers, what stands out for me is that uh, we, that, that are people who aren't clear on what we believe. They believe that there's God in there, that he's God, he's in control of the world. But often I think we don't hear much about God's and his saving work and his, what he's done for us in Jesus. In other words, believers are generally clear on who God is, but I think believers are not very clear on what God has done for us in Jesus. In verse 22 and 23 in today's chapter, Paul, he's super clear on Jesus. He's the fulfillment of Moses and the prophets. He died and rose again, and he paves the way for resurrection life to all. And I think today, especially in a post-Christian world, where people go to church less, they learn about Jesus less in schools, we need to be super clear on what we believe on the truth claims that we have about Jesus. If someone asked you today who Jesus is, or if you had the opportunity to share about who Jesus is today, what would you say? Maybe that's a good question to ask someone during morning tea. Because I reckon some of us will sidestep the question and others will arm and ah their way through it. And then others will be like King Agrippa here and laugh it off. Know the truth claims of Jesus. He's God's son. God made flesh. He's God's promised king. 
He died taking the penalty of our sin. He rose again, signaling the defeat of death. His rising from the grave paves the way for new life forever for those who believe in him. The work of Jesus on the cross makes us right before a holy God. The risen Jesus gives us a sure hope of salvation and eternal life. Know the truth claims about Jesus. Know what you believe. Know what God says in his word about the good news of Jesus. And be ready to share these truths of Jesus when the opportunity arises. Third and final tip today, seek a response to Jesus. I think partly because we want to be respectful to others, partly because we're scarred by history and bad experiences, and partly because I think we're a bit of a defeatist and pessimist in our church. Uh, We're not good today in calling for a response to the good news of Jesus. But as we share Jesus, as people hear and understand and grapple with the gospel message, we need to remember that the gospel message calls for a response. It might be yes, it might be not yet, and it might be no. But we need to be seeking a response from our friends who are weighing up Jesus. And it doesn't need to be awkward. It could simply be, how are you going in considering Jesus? How's your investigation going? What do you make of Jesus? And what does Jesus mean to you? You see, the gospel demands a response. As C.S. Lewis famously said, Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And we should be ready to seek out a response to Jesus. In listening to people talking about evangelism, we all rightly think evangelism is a process. But I think we all want to be in the beginning part of that process, sowing a seed, being suggestive that you're a Christian, saying something like, I go to church on Sunday, or I'll pray for you. But in reality, God could use you in any part of that process. That process could be long or short. People might providentially fall into your lap. Will you be ready to share your story of Jesus in your life? To share the truth claims of Jesus? Or to seek a response about following Jesus as Lord and Savior? Well, as we finish off today, the world thinks that the gospel is on trial. But in reality, the gospel puts the world on trial. The gospel, God calls for response to Jesus and a saving message. If you're visiting this morning, I pray that as we've seen in this chapter, you'll listen to people's stories about God you'll listen to truth claims about Jesus and that you'll respond to Jesus in faith and repentance. 
for those of you who follow Jesus here today, take these three tips from Paul in Acts 26. Know your testimony. Know the truths of Jesus and to seek a response. But ultimately, I think, I pray, that we'll walk away not only with these three tips, but we'll walk away with the same longing that Paul has at the end of this chapter. That all who hear the gospel, whether it's through us or others, that these people will taste and see that Jesus is indeed good news. We ought to long for people to taste and see that the Lord is good. That in Jesus, sins are forgiven. Death is defeated. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to light. And we enjoy life forever in God's new creation. Let's long for those around us to taste and see that Jesus is good news. Let's pray. Father God, remind us this morning that your good news of life in Jesus is news to proclaim. Help us to do this well and point to Jesus clearly and faithfully, whether it's through sharing our testimony, sharing your truths about Jesus. Help us to be bold in seeking response to the offer of life in Jesus. For those here who haven't responded to Jesus, please help them to come to you and to be convicted of how good it is to be in Jesus. And for those of us here who are followers of Jesus, we pray that you would renew our longing and our desire for more people to taste and see that Jesus is indeed good news. We pray these things in his name. Amen.